from the Australian Taxpayers Alliance, this is Taxed and Wasted, a podcast about tax, regulation, and waste. I'm your host, Emilio Garcia. Welcome back to Taxed and Wasted by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. In a little bit, we're going to talk to Michael Knowles from the Daily Wire about libertarianism versus conservatism. Tune in for that a little bit later. But before we do that, we're going to go through the news of the week that we found relevant. And since we are the Australian Taxpayers Alliance, we're going to talk about a new tax that the taxpayers are going to be burdened with. We all know about the NBN debacle. That was the failed, horrible $51 billion infrastructure project that uh, has been uh, rolled out over the last few years. When this, uh, when this infrastructure project, this terrible idea, was proposed, we were assured that we would be paid back for this, uh, for this project. Not that it should have been greenlit to begin with, but that's a totally separate thing. And apparently... The government's plan to pay the taxpayer back for the $51 billion that they misappropriated is to tax the taxpayer again, but only if they don't use that service. So let me explain. Right now, obviously the NBN is a disaster. Uh, it's, it, it provided us with subpar, slightly less subpar internet speeds than we had before, but it's just finished being rolled out. And so if you use the internet but you don't use the NBN, you are going to get taxed in order for the government to pay back the taxpayer. So if you're like me and you hired the NBN, you're off the hook. You are not going to have to deal with this tax. But if you get your internet from any provider that does not provide you with NBN, your bill is about to get $7 and a few cents more expensive. Uh, obviously, this is absurd. Uh, I mean, it's ridiculous that we would have to deal with uh, such a terribly expensive failed uh, infrastructure project, but to then tax people who don't use it in order to pay them back, essentially, is an outrage. And I know that $7 and a few cents doesn't seem like a huge amount, but just consider if you're paying $50 a month or more, for your internet currently, and it's not the NBN, well, the difference between 50 and $57 may seem arbitrary, but, uh, you know, it does, it does hurt a little bit more, doesn't it? The NBN has also um, announced, apparently, whoever's handling it, that they're not going to be transparent with us. So usually you would expect, well, all right, you already kind of pushed this horrible, terrible project on us. Well, at least we get to be informed of how, of how it does over the years as it helps Australians, supposedly. They're actually not going to tell us what the profits or losses are for the NBN. So they've announced there's going to be no transparency. We're not going to know how much money the NBN is losing or how much profit they're making. So we just have to accept that the NBN is what it is. You're going to have to accept your tax if you don't have the NBN, and that's the end of the story. Seems outrageous. We want to repeal this tax. If you want to help us, please go to our website, taxpayers.org.au, and you can find more information there. Speaking of getting rid of taxes, repealing taxes, there's a push 
to scrap the luxury car tax. We had this tax um, in place because we wanted to protect the local industry, uh, mainly Holden. We wanted to protect uh, this car manufacturer, and it's gone. Holden is no longer. And this has begged the question among many Australians, reasonably so, why do we still need this tax? Now, we would argue that this tax should have never really been implemented to begin with, but now that there's nothing left to protect, then why is this protectionist measure still in place? Now, the treasurer has uh, apparently resisted calls and acted with uh, some reservations when bringing up the, the possibility of repealing this tax, but without Holden, there's apparently enough pressure to, to make him consider uh, getting rid of this tax. And hopefully, you know, it's unfortunate for everyone who has purchased a car over 63000 I believe it is, uh, you know, having to have paid that tax in the past. But cars are going to get uh, less expensive, hopefully. So that's, uh, that's some good news, finally. There, there is some good news this week. Moving on now, we wanted to touch on the cash ban very quickly. I don't want to. I don't want to stay on the cash ban too long because it's still kind of up in the air. Tomorrow, which is going to be the twenty-first uh, Friday, you're, you're probably going to get this on Tuesday. We're going to get a report from the Senate inquiry into the cash ban. We don't know what is going to be in there, but following that, probably on the twenty-seventh of um, February we're going to actually have a vote. Now, they've been moving the vote a lot, so it could be the case that by the next time that you're listening to the podcast, the, the cash ban bill has either failed or passed, but it's important to keep an eye on that. We are obviously pushing strongly against the cash ban, and you can help us push against the cash ban as well by going to our website, taxpayers.org.au forward slash don't dash ban dash cash and sending a tweet to your MP. Let them know that you're not happy about this. Um, If you haven't heard about the cash ban, which we've discussed amply, the cash ban is a bill that proposes that there be a restriction on purchases in cash over $10,000. This uh, figure, $10,000, is not tagged to inflation, which means that every single year you get to spend less and less in cash And it also has a strange provision there that says, we're not going to restrict transactions in Bitcoin or in cryptocurrency over $10,000 unless the transactions become popular, in which case we'll implement that too. Just terrible. And uh, we're obviously dealing with with, uh, a bill that is completely just a corporatist bill that is going to award a lot to the big banks. Now you will have to necessarily go through a bank for large transactions. Business owners will have to. It's just a terrible bill. So the Greens and Labor have come out against it. Uh, kudos. And uh, we, we, we will keep you up to date, but uh, you can definitely help us by contacting your MP. Moving on, uh, ScoMo has said that he's going to take an approach of technology over taxation on his approach to climate change. Now, obviously, things have not been going well for ScoMo uh, politically. 
he apologized for uh, the crime of taking a vacation and spending Christmas with his family uh, while there were some uh, bushfires here in Australia. Uh, he then claimed that it had always been the, the position of his government that extreme weather events such as bushfires uh, were influenced strongly by climate change, which is a verifiable falsehood. And so this seems to be his way to kind of return to the position that he held before on climate change, which is we obviously have an eye towards a reduction in CO2 emissions. We want cleaner air. We want to make sure that we're not uh, being feckless about the issue, but we're not going to kill industry. We're not going to get rid of jobs. We're not going to burden Australians to do so because there's a give and take. So we, uh, we will probably hear a lot of pushback um, from, uh, on that front because, of course, um, climate alarmists think that the only way to solve climate change is to tax everyone back into the Stone Age. Uh, but, of course, poverty doesn't solve climate change. So we definitely want to, uh, you know, it's always good to have a, a variety of energy sources uh, cleaner energy is fantastic. Uh, energy that is cheaper is fantastic. Uh, so that's why we, of course, back nuclear. But climate activists don't like nuclear for some strange reason. Uh, but, you know, it, it, this is a good approach by SCOMO. If, if uh, you want to encourage uh, different industries to innovate and to provide Australians with cleaner, cheaper energy, we are 100% for that. We're going to end really quickly uh, with, uh, with some praise for Senator James McGrath, who has said that the government needs to act with more transparency. Absolutely agree. Currently, the government has some quote-unquote transparency measures. They're a joke. Supposedly, if you go into some kind of, uh, you know, let's just put it this way. The government makes a lot of information available to the public, but it's so complicated, so hard to find, it is nearly impossible to actually learn anything. So they can claim that there's transparency because you can access different terribly complicated long spreadsheets uh, and PDFs uh, spattered around the many, many websites that exist from the Australian government. But if you, as a taxpayer, or let's say even someone who's looking uh, into, the, into the government for journalistic purposes, if you actually want to find any specific figure from government spending or from the government uh, doing anything else that, that relates to, to government and governance, it's going to be extremely hard for you to, to, to do it. You have to actually know what you're doing. So James McGrath has said there should be a transparency portal. And all government expenditures should be easily accessible to everybody through there. Absolutely agree. We have already seen tons of scandals of politicians spending our money completely irresponsibly in ways that are completely unjustifiable. We see just an incredibly, incredible lack of fiscal conservatism here in Australia. And having the Australian people being able to look easily at clear numbers is a fantastic, fantastic initiative. We stand fully behind him and good on James McGrath for pushing this issue. We look forward to, uh, to getting on the transparency portal every single day and uh, just picking apart every single 
unnecessary expenditure on behalf of the government. That about brings us uh, to the end of our news review. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And now, please enjoy our interview with Michael Knowles. Michael, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So for the very few who don't know who you are, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit? Sure. I uh, host a show at the Daily Wire, which is called The Michael Mm. Knowles Show, very creatively named. And (laughs) I also host a show with the uh, U.S. Senator Ted Cruz called Verdict. And I also host a show for PragerU, which is called The Book Club. And that's just a it's a less political show. It's a show where we just talk about some of the great books that everyone should read, but nobody does read because our schools have fallen apart. <laughs> and uh, and I also uh, write, you know, and contribute op-eds to various places. And probably my magnum opus is that I uh, once published, though I can't say I wrote, a completely blank book called Reasons to Vote for Democrats, a Comprehensive Guide, which... In- yeah. oh, thank you so much. Thank you for reading my scholarly work. Um, very surprisingly, but hilariously jumped to number one on the bestseller charts. (laughs) Right. Well, I think that's because, uh, Trump gave it a plug, didn't he? He did. You know, it's funny. The book jumped to number one on its own, uh, pretty much just because American conservatives were having so much fun after the 2016 (laughs) election. And it was there on its own for about a week or so. And then, it, you know, it obviously started to dip eventually. And then uh, the president saw it and tweeted his endorsement of it. And <laughs> it goes right back up to the top for another week or so. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. And so much. Uh, let's have let's have some fun with uh, with libertarianism and conservatism. So the reason that I asked you to be on is because there's a really interesting debate kind of between the, the classical liberal libertarian and the traditionalist conservative um, side of politics. Yes. And uh, so before we get into where they kind of differ, where do you think the important overlaps are? Because a lot of people see kind of libertarians and conservatives as largely on the same boat. Uh, Yes. And uh, in the American experience in particular, but I suppose throughout the entire Anglosphere, you know, including Australia Mm -hmm. and uh, the UK, Mm -hmm. Uh, you you see a lot of overlap as well. So, you know, one thing about conservatives is you can get 10 conservatives in a room and you can be guaranteed that not a single one of them will agree with any of the other ones. You know, we're (laughs) always sort of pointing out where we differ and debating those things, which Mm -hmm. is a a difference with the left. You know, the left, on the other hand, seems to really strive for uniformity of thought. There's there's not really much division anymore. It's it's just all under the banner of progressivism. So Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of overlap. Obviously, there was a very intentional overlap between libertarianism and conservatism or traditionalism for uh, the latter half of the 20th century. And that was uh, an intentional movement by William F. Buckley Jr. and uh, Frank Meyer and a number of other journalists and philosophers and conservative mm-hmm. activists, probably Ronald Reagan most famously, who created this uh, philosophy or ideology of fusionism, which brought together the economic libertarians, the social traditionalists, and the foreign policy hawks, all mm-hmm. who had this common enemy in the Soviet Union. So the traditionalists and the religious right, for instance, despised the Soviet Union because it was uh, godless, atheistic, anti-religious. The uh, economic libertarians opposed the Soviet Union for collectivism and the Cold War hawks 
uh, didn't like the Soviet Union's imperialist ambitions. But when you mm. looked at the coalition itself, they didn't seem to have a whole lot in common. I mean, <laughs> to, to use an issue that's cropped up recently in debate, the issue of pornography and prostitution, yes. the libertarian would want to deregulate and the traditionalist would want to re-regulate. You couldn't possibly right. get more opposing views. And, and in the old right, at least in America, the prevailing foreign policy view was one approaching isolationism. And of course, that's right. very different than the Cold War hawks. So they had very little in common. It was a, it, an incoherent coalition, except they managed to accomplish exactly what they wanted to do. They won the Cold War through this improbable coalition. And it's why I, I don't really think that, I, I think that the divisions between conservatives and libertarians have been a little overplayed recently, only in so much as all political coalitions are incoherent. They must be. There simply right. are not enough people who think exactly the same thoughts. And uh, politics makes strange bedfellows, but a, a politics of opposition can be very helpful. And so what we're seeing right now is a kind of libertarian, traditionalist, classical, liberal, moderate coalition that's attacking the hard left, which, we, which all of us see as... Uh, dismantling our culture, even dismantling the distinction between men and women. Now, does that coalition make a whole lot of sense? Maybe not, but at least we have a common foe, and I think we could be successful. Yeah, sure. Uh, so on that point, uh, sure, there's a lot of things that we agree on, probably among many other issues, uh, small government. But what do you think makes conservatism better than libertarianism? Yeah, I tend to favor the more conservative approach or the traditional <laughs> approach. I right. think it's because all ideology is wrong. I think every single mm. one of them is wrong. The human experience is simply too vast and complex to boil down to a manifesto. And I fear that libertarianism tries to boil down all of humanity to a, a manifesto. And or a spreadsheet. Or a spreadsheet, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think back, actually, on that point, I think back to Edmund Burke, you know, that first great modern conservative philosopher who lamented in reflections on the revolution in France. He said, the age of chivalry is gone. That of sophisters, economists, and calculators has succeeded it, and the glory of Europe is extinguished forever. And I just fear mm. that the libertarian model at, at its worst end boils things down to a kind of materialist view of the world, which is crazy. You know, uh, everything mm. that we actually care about, our hopes, our dreams, our loves, our joys, those are immaterial things. And if, if sure. all that conservatism means is cutting taxes a little more or bumping economic growth up a little bit more, while I love both of those things, I love low taxes and I love economic growth, but if that's all that our political philosophy is, I think it's pretty weak and I, I don't think there's any way to, to make that argument, a bean-counting argument, against the mm. left. Yeah, no, I definitely agree uh, Agree with that. And uh, yeah, libertarianism could be a little bit more human, I think, yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to say the least. Um, but I want to talk about uh, trade, and, yeah. because there is kind of a strong, and I think this even spreads into, into conservative uh, circles, where there is this idea that trade is good for the sake of trade. And open trade is good for the sake of open trade, and that any type of protectionist measure or tariffs or taxes on any uh, products coming into a country will necessarily affect the population. Right. And this was one of the things that actually I think united a lot of libertarians and conservatives when Trump started going after China. Yep. They said, uh, you know, this is going to devastate uh, a lot of industry. 
Americans are going to start paying a lot more for products. Uh, and suddenly, it actually didn't go too badly. Right. <laughs> uh, well, it went terribly for China. Uh, yep. <laughs> but on us, kind of negligible. Do you want to do you want to talk on that for a sec? It was a wonderful moment because you know one of the downsides to political success is that all your great ideas inevitably get boiled down into slogans. They have to, to be politically useful. And then the sure. slogans become bumper stickers. And then we believe the bumper stickers are the philosophy. And we start to believe our own sort of shallow talking points. And one of those mm. talking points was that there is absolutely no role for protectionism or tariffs ever in the conduct of politics. And it always hurts everybody and nobody benefits and there's no use to it. I was taught that growing up. I think most conservatives and libertarians, at least in America, were taught that. And Trump proved that the real story is a little more complicated than that, because uh, I believe it was Trump who asked the question. He said, if tariffs are, are uniformly awful, how come every country has them? <laughs> Clearly, <laughs> uh, everyone else seems to think there's a role for them. And, and that's what we saw play out, the doomsday predictions from people who said that any sort of protection would would be devastating. It just didn't happen other than on our adversary. And, you know, when you look at the history of the Republican Party in America, the party mm -hmm. was actually founded on protectionism. Oh, yeah. Abraham Lincoln, who was the you know, first Republican president, he said, uh, give me a tariff and I'll give you the greatest nation on earth. And then, of course, uh, our economic views changed over time. And uh, and Trump, in, in his own way, is vacillating on this. On the one hand, he says tariffs work and tariffs are great. On the other hand, he says, I want to get rid of all the tariffs and I want to have lower <laughs> barriers to trade. Um, part of that, I think, is his madman strategy of negotiation. <laughs> you never quite know what he's thinking. But right. I, I think that, that that space is a much healthier one for conservatives and libertarians to debate these questions of tariffs. Obviously, they have a role. Obviously, they serve a purpose. That's why they exist and that's why they've, they've always been used by countries. And the question is how best to use them to serve the national interest rather than some abstraction of a uh, you know free international marketplace that sometimes has ill effects on uh, on citizens and very often doesn't function as people say it will on paper. Yeah, sure. And that actually leads us really nicely into the next thing that I wanted to discuss which is immigration. Yeah. So, when it comes to immigration uh, between th there's kind of like a libertarian and also left-wing point of view that yeah. if you allow a lot of people into the country just by the sheer force of having more people in your country consuming and and spending they will prop up the economy and so there's actually no downside to mass immigration and right. then you have people who are more conservative saying well you know we have to proceed with a little bit of caution it's my own point of view that if we're exporting all of our low-skilled jobs ab uh, abroad, that it doesn't make a lot of sense to then import tons of low-skilled labor. But, <laughs> right, um, right. I mean, do you want to talk on this a little bit? Well, that's an excellent point. I mean, of, of course, people are making this argument out of both sides of their mouth. They're saying we have to export all of our low-skilled low jobs overseas. We have to outsource. It's the way the market's moving. Oh, mm -hmm. and on the other hand, we're going to open up our borders and have no limit <laughs> on low-skilled immigration. That, that doesn't make right. a lot of sense. Uh, mm -hmm. The the libertarian argument, I think, for open borders, it breaks down and, because it highlights the insufficiency of libertarianism as a totalizing governing philosophy, which is that it, it treats human beings merely as uh, economic objects or mm. as, uh, as 
material objects even. Uh, what it ignores is the effect of mass migration on culture. You know, conservatives yeah. presumably want to conserve something. And the question is, what do you want to conserve? I mean, if we could have uh, completely unfettered trade and totally open borders, and we could lower the cost of goods by 10%, that would be wonderful. But if as a result of that, people no longer speak English in the United States, that's right. not a, a worthwhile trade-off for me. I would much rather pay a little bit more for my technological goods and cheap plastics and still be able to have a recognizable community with a recognizable culture. And uh, so that's why the uh, conservative view on this has not been one of completely eliminating immigration. That's never right. been a serious view advocated. But it's one of evolution, not revolution, an idea saying there are other factors at play here. And, uh, and to quote Ronald Reagan in one of the great speeches, Time for Choosing, that kind of kicked off the modern or the post-war conservative movement, mm. he was quote, himself quoting Winston Churchill. And he said, when great forces are on the move in the world, we learn that we're spirits, not animals. The destiny mm -hmm. of man is not measured by material computation. And I, I think uh, we need to keep that in mind when we think about immigration as well, because there's a lot more going on than just uh, the price of wages or something. Yeah, yeah, I uh, broadly agree. I'm an immigrant in Australia, so uh, yeah. I don't wanna I don't want to be too hard on immigration. But Well, you know, uh, I, I come from a country that, well, I guess like Australia too, I mean, in a certain mm -hmm. sense, everybody is an immigrant. Uh, you know, half my family came from Italy, and then the other half were the kind of OG immigrants who came over on the Mayflower. But, right. uh, you know, uh, other than 400 years ago, nobody, nobody was here before then. And so right. America has always taken in new people, but this mm -hmm. is the first time in history where we've more or less... Uh, uh, mass imported millions and millions of people per year. And, uh, yep. you know, as a result, it, one aspect of politics is that it doesn't just exist in the abstract, you know, it exists in real time. Right now, we have the highest foreign born pop percentage of the population in the US uh, that we've had at least since 1890. And so mm. it's created a lot of cultural tensions, it's created a lot of economic tensions as well. And so uh, it would it would seem reasonable right now to restrict the flow of immigrants into the country. That might not be true 50 years from now, but you know, politics has always have to has to be responsive to particular circumstances, and that's why some of our views now might be a little different than they were when we were fighting the Cold War, and they might be a little different than they were when we were fighting the Spanish-American War. You know, that's, yeah, sure, that's and, no, and, and that actually ties into what you were saying earlier about all ideologies being wrong. If you think yeah. that one set of ideas is going to apply to every situation that it will ever occur ever. Uh, yep. innocently, then I think uh, I think that's narrow thinking. Uh, but I want to go back a few steps to what you said about conservatives conserving, because that's the last topic that I want to touch with you, yep. which is I look at the conservative movement at the moment. Now, fiscal conservatism is kind of a fiction at this moment. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> In marriage. terms of government spending, you mean. Yeah. And right. this, uh, across the West, um, yep. governing, um, yeah. For example, marriage, yep. that, uh, that's something that wasn't conserved the way that it used to. Uh, abortion was a law that was, that uh, was a part of uh, the movement that was lost by conservatives. And yep. uh, I'm wondering, what are conservatives actually conserving? Like, what are the wins? Because I see a lot of right-wing, reactionary kind of culture war politics, but I'm not sure where the conservatism is actually coming into play in today's right. political sphere. 
Well, when Bill Buckley founded the post-war conservative movement, he, he defined it as standing athwart history yelling stop, which is, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe not the most affirmative point of view. I mean, he's basically saying we're going to slow down the left as best we can and stop them from marching and running roughshod all over us. And there have been mm. some major conservative losses during the Obama era. I mean, the, the redefinition of marriage at the level of the Supreme Court was simply monumental. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, you know, similar in the cultural enormity to Roe versus Wade. I mean, I, I think Roe versus right. Wade is a far more wicked decision because it's resulted in tens of millions of babies being slaughtered over the last mm -hmm. uh, 40 years. But similar cultural impact, I suppose. But Roe versus Wade gives us a little bit of hope because in 1973, when, when Roe versus Wade invented the fictitious constitutional right to an abortion, uh, the... Right. Public opinion in the United States was moving f very quickly in the direction of abortion. So states were legalizing abortion; they were they were liberalizing their laws. And then after Roe versus Wade, that stopped, and the momentum went in the other direction. All of a sudden, you started to see what became the pro-life movement. I was just at the March for Life about a month ago in mm. Washington D.C. It was huge. I mean, upwards of a million people probably throughout the city. Um, and there have been a lot of wins in, in recent years. Uh, just uh, I think of Georgia, I think of uh, of Alabama, I think of Missouri, other states mm -hmm. around the country have done their best to curtail abortion rights. I mean, all the way back to the point of a heartbeat, I think of cultural advances like uh, sonograms, specifically 3D sonograms, show people the lies of the pro-abortion movement, show them that it's not just a random clump of non-living matter, but actually there's mm -hmm. a baby in there. And right. so I, I think that's that's been one way that we've been able to recover. But the Obama years were really brutal for conservatives. And yeah. in part, I think that's why you're seeing the reaction from President Trump. And President Trump's winning was was different than a sort of just a Democrat to Republican shift. You know, it was different than Bill Clinton going to George Bush. Uh, it was different in that because the changes were so fundamental under Barack Obama you're now seeing a cracking up of the conservative consensus, which many of us think had become ossified, specifically after the Cold right. War. And you're seeing, you're seeing uh, programs such as this really debating now what conservatism is trying to conserve. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I, I think you've seen a lot of progress on the economic front. I think you've seen a lot of progress on the pro-life front under Trump. I think you've mm -hmm. seen a lot of progress on the on patriotism. You know, it had become very unfashionable to say, I love my country. It had become unfashionable to say right. a, a countryman ought to be able to control their own borders or something. That has now changed. Uh, on the deeper level, you know, on a level like marriage, I, I think that there hasn't been a ton of progress. Actually, the cultural and sexual revolution had to get so far that uh, they were denying that men are different than women uh, in order right. for us to say, hold on, wait a second. Maybe the sexual revolution has gone too far. But but specifically on that mm. front, you're, I think you're seeing this broad coalition of people who include not just conservatives or libertarians, but who include homosexual atheists and transgender people <laughs> themselves who are now saying, hold on, this gender ideology is too wacky. Uh, mm. Child drag queens are a step too far, and they're kind of uniting. There was a good piece in the American Mind on this uh, a week ago by by Spencer Clavin, actually, who's mm. uh, one of the editors over there. I mean, saying that this broad new new right coalition uh, is it, is really reacting in some ways to the excesses of the sexual revolution. So, I think that's a that gives us a glimmer of hope, but it, it, there's a, a real 
sadness that sets in when you realize how much has been lost. And uh, I, I think getting back to our first topic, a lot of it has been lost mm. because the right acquiesced to a more or less materialist vision of the world. Yes. They, they bought so many of the left's premises on, for instance, the neutrality of secularism or the primacy mm-hmm. of, of uh, material goods and, and uh, you know, just consuming and consuming and consuming ever more. And I, I just noticed anecdotally in the last few years, I think the right has been shaken out of that and they're uh, readier than ever to engage on those cultural issues. Whether, whether we've simply lost too much remains to be seen, but I think there's finally a, an eagerness and a consensus on the right, that we've got to fight the cultural issues first, and then the the economic and, and more narrowly political will follow. But if, if we try to ignore the cultural issues, we'll lose everything. Yeah, true. Well, uh, Michael, I won't keep you for uh, for too much longer. Thank you so much for being here, and uh, hopefully we'll talk soon. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Taxed and Wasted by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. If you haven't already, please go to iTunes or Podchaser and leave us a five-star review. It helps more people find the show. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. You'll get every single episode in your newsfeed as you sleep. Don't forget the Freedman Conference is coming up. You can buy your tickets on our website, taxpayers.org.au. You can also see all of our campaigns there, our mission statement, and you can become a supporter. If you become a supporter, there is a great chance that you might get a free Freedman ticket or even a free VIP Freedman ticket based on which tier of support you choose. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.